everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. Uh, this episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plan Healing Center, the Temple, the Way of Light. I've worked at the temple for, I think, about the past decade now, uh, and it's a really beautiful place to experience the work of, uh, I guess, what could be called plant spirit medicine, sacred plant medicines. They work predominantly with ayahuasca, working in the Shipibo lineage. Um, <clears throat> they offer 12-day retreats where there's six ceremonies, uh, four different healers or curanderos, doctors, uh, two to three facilitators. Um, they offer yoga classes. They work with bone doctors, massage people, um, herbalists. And it's really just an amazing environment to come and experience the, the power that these plant medicines really have to offer. Um, within those uh, 12 days, there's six ceremonies, which is uh, really an ample amount of time to really begin to go deep into the, these processes and to really experience all of the, the healing, the learning and the teaching that these plants have to offer. So if you're interested in working with ayahuasca, uh, the temple is a really amazing place. Um, they've unfortunately been closed due to the pandemic since um, March of 2020, but they're scheduled to reopen in August of this year. So if you'd like more information about the temple, you can visit their website at templeofthewayoflight.org, and there'll be a link in the show notes to that. Um, and then also my friend and colleague, Marav Artsy, who I interviewed in episode 28, I believe. Um, we're continuing to run diets. We just uh, finished one. Um, our next one is actually going to be in New York, in the U.S., um, I think it might be sold out, although there, there may be one or two spots left. Um, and then we're back here in September running diets. And then I also believe we're going to be in Egypt in October. Um, so I'll have all the links to those on my website, nicotianarustica.org. Uh, and also Marav has a site, tobaccodiets.com. And that's a really amazing opportunity to, um, to go really deeply into this world of plants, to go into isolation, to really begin to restrict uh, food and stimulus and um, develop a, a connection and really begin to experience uh, what these plants have to offer, whether it's healing, learning, teaching, almost always all three of those things combined. So for more information, you can check out our websites with that. Um, and yeah, this episode, I sat down with my friend, Diana. Uh, Diana, I met working at the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of Way of Light, uh, a number of years ago. I think it was about eight years ago now. Um, and she was facilitating ceremonies there. Um, she lived there for a number of years and then she went back and she does a lot of work with integration. Um, she's also trained in the, the Gabor Mate way of working. Um, and she's a really beautiful woman. She has a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom. She's worked with many, many people now. And so I think she has, a um, just a lot of, again, knowledge and wisdom to, to share and to, um, to, to get across. So, uh, this was a really good episode. I really enjoyed talking to Diana. It's always uh, for me nice getting a chance to kind of reconnect with uh, 
with old friends and um, and this was a, a really beautiful episode and I think you all will get a lot out of it. So um, as always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a, a really big help. Um, a really good way to do that is through Patreon. And with Patreon, it's a subscription service. You can give as little as a dollar a month. And there's a few different tiers you can sign up for. And with that, there's added benefits, things like early access to shows, uh, Q&As, bonus material. And that's a really big help to me uh, to help to continue to bring on these guests like Diana. Um, and just to do all of the editing and shooting and all of the, the work it takes to create these. So to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, and if you are able to do that, I would also greatly appreciate it. There's also the option of directly donating via PayPal. Um, I'll put a, a link to both the Patreon and the PayPal links in the show notes. And then if you're not able to do that, um, just going on the Universe Within podcast homepage, uh, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the videos. That's a, a really big help. It may seem like a small thing, but with the, the algorithms of YouTube, it really helps to get the show out to a bigger audience. And then with the audio version of the podcast, going on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's also a really big help. All the people who have done that, thank you very much. And if you can do that, thank you in advance. So I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Dion. From the maze, running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out from the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, run out of the maze today. Wow, that's new. Mm. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> it's official. <laughs> Well, it's really nice to have you. It's it's good to see you. I I, I never know exactly how to phrase that exactly because although I am seeing you, or I'm also seeing you through this like virtual format, so yeah, <laughs> it's not quite the same. Um, but uh, yeah, like like m many of the guests uh, on this show, I I originally met you. I don't know. It's probably been six seven years ago now. Um, Two thousand thirteen, I think. Yeah. So eight yeah. years, maybe. <laughs> yeah, a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But we were we were both working together at uh, at the the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple, the Way of Light. I think I was on my way, kind of out for an extended period yeah. of time. I was kind of entering a, a longer process of dieting, and you were coming in. Um, and then I ended up coming back and, and I think you were also coming and going and that's when our, our paths really crossed and, and we began to work together some, um, but maybe just to start, uh, I, I think some of the people will probably recognize uh, your face because they're familiar with you, um, but a lot of people probably won't too. So maybe just a little bit about your background, who you are, where you're from, what your life was like and, and what eventually led you into, into this work that you're doing. Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> Always the big question, who are you? <laughs> who am I? Um, I guess I I grew up in Nova Scotia in a, in a small island. And um, I guess that has actually influenced me more than I think sometimes I really realize. Uh, the environment there was very much this 
like we take care of each other was kind of the, the attitude of that place. And um, even though there was lots of problematic things and every family has its stuff, um, there was something about it that I really kind of learned around like people and care and um, just that there's a kind of community around you to support you and, and be with you. So I think that that kind of impacted me in a big way um, just in terms of my values and, and what's important. And in terms of how I ended up in this world of plant medicines and integration, um, yeah, that probably starts more than eight years ago. Um, I used to live in Vancouver uh, for many years. I was working at a university there. And I was very curious in terms of, I started researching a lot around pedagogy in terms of how people learn. And I started a project with my friend there and we ended up working for the vice president academic. And we got very curious about this idea of how can education be a tool to help people kind of connect more deeply with themselves and align with what's important to them. And kind of this idea of also how to take academic out of the academy and kind of into this idea of what they call praxis. So that it's also a practice as well. And so I ended up working there for a few years, but at the same time, I was also working with ayahuasca <laughs> and I went to Peru my first time in 2012 um, on a break from work. And uh, yeah, I, I guess, I, so there was this kind of thirst in me to learn more about kind of what gets people excited, what gets them connected to themselves, how can they kind of live that in the world. So that was kind of an ongoing theme in my, in my own personal research and then also turned into my job for the university. Um, and then at that point, I had all of these reoccurring dreams about uh, ayahuasca and the jungle. Um, it was like very persistent, like, and it was like a center and like, I, at first I was like, do I have to build this center? What's going on? I don't want to do that. That sounds like a pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> I, I was like, I don't know where to start with that. And then I remember hearing about the, the temple um, through a friend. We were hosting. I used to live in this host in Vancouver where we would have a lot of like art and activism style events at our home. And we had a few of the Ashwar indigenous leaders who were coming up to Vancouver to talk with oil companies. And so they were doing some events at our house and a couple of the people traveling with them visited the temple uh, when they were there. And this is when I was having all these dreams about the, about the jungle. And I was feeling like a change was necessary. Um, and at that point uh, I looked it up and I was like, Oh, this seems familiar. <laughs> and I'd never been, but I applied for the work exchange and then, Pretty soon after, they asked me if I wanted to, to stay and, and train as a facilitator. So I guess that's how I got to that point. Um, and then I think my curiosity with integration probably started after the first time I worked with that medicine. And so again, this was in the context of Canada. Um, I took the medicine. I went for a weekend of ceremonies. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And I'd say that first year things really fell apart. So this was kind of before I decided to go to the temple. It was a, a few years, probably three years before. Um, and 
I just didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I tried to talk with the counselors at the time and I didn't really found, find them that supportive. Like I didn't really have much of a context. You know, there was definitely some support there, but some of the things that I was going through, they just couldn't really relate to. Um, and eventually I'm very glad that that all happened and kind of things fell apart. But in the, at the time it was very, very challenging. Um, so I guess I have a lot of empathy in terms of, you know, what this can bring up, these medicines can bring up for people. And then I also kind of have a lot of respect for the power of these plants. And so um, all of these things and then have kind of been intertwining together with my own personal work and doing my own process of, of dietas and, you know, living I was in the Amazon, I went in 2013, I guess that's when you were on your way out. <laughs> um, but I was, yeah, I was working there for about four years in and out of the jungle uh, and studying at the same time. And then I think integration kind of took the next level when I went to Mexico and started to see Gabor Mate doing his work. Um, and so I went and first participated in a retreat where I was a guest uh, and then eventually worked a few more with them and that that crew of folks. So they would do ayahuasca and then they would do really intensive group processing for about eight hours in the day. Um, and so I think that's really where there was like something missing still, I think, in my process where I was like, oh, okay. Um, I think that it's possible to gain a lot more tools to help people kind of connect these experiences back to their lives and I just noticed, you know, in myself, like I was able to connect some things that, you know, I felt like I had a lot of really great friends at the temple in terms of that I was able to sit with and process things or just even for myself. But I found like they, they just hit a kind of deeper level of being grounded, um, some of these concepts and some of these experiences. So I think that's something that just always stuck out to me in terms of like, okay, um, there is a way to kind of gain more tools that can really relate to this experience. Um, and I think some people need it and some people don't, you know, I, I think some people have a good sense. I think it's not um, like integration is a really big theme and a really big concept. And I think most people can benefit from doing integration work. Um, and at the same time, I, you know, I don't think everyone needs it all the time. And it, it can look like someone might just need one session because they're confused by something or some, sometimes people want ongoing work. And so um, that brought me to about four years ago and I left the jungle and then I think experienced my own another big period of integration uh, in terms of adjusting back to Western life. Um, there was a lot of big personal changes, marriage, a child, um, trying to immigration process for my partner. So there's a lot of big shifts uh, that I think really tested me in terms of, okay, what did you just learn <laughs> in the jungle? Um, and, you know, kind of also seeing that these plants are a fix all and they're not a magic wand, but, you know, hopefully they can be another tool of giving us skills to navigate to open up more space in ourselves to kind of be with 
the challenging moments, the beautiful moments, you know, all of the above, like just to, just to be with experience, whatever that is. Um, and then in this time being back in the kind of West in Canada, um, yeah, I've been studying a few different things, self-somatic experiencing. I finished the more official Cabramante's Compassionate Inquiry. Uh, and then now I've started my, my master's in psychology of counseling. And I guess I'm per personally really curious about how do we, like there's a medicine in all of these different systems and all of these different modalities. And I don't think one alone is enough personally. Um, and so it's like, how do, I think someone's this idea of, you know, healing, if we want to call it that, or just, I, I think I prefer to call it just coming back to themselves, usually has to be a process of many different modalities and intersections. And, you know, that can be something from drinking plant medicines, it can be something to prayer, it can be psychotherapy, it can be uh, singing or dancing or martial arts or yoga or breath work or um, I don't know, the list is huge. Um, but I, I usually think that people need to explore different things and find out what, what works for them. And so I guess that's what I'm in the process of doing is exploring these different modalities and trying to find what I feel like is like the, what feels true to me in terms of the kind of best parts of it and, um, <laughs> and then, you know, see the limitations of it as well. You said you you had this this calling, um, like ayahuasca kept coming to you. These these very specific images, this set and setting, that seems to be a fairly common theme. I think for a lot of people who are somehow drawn to this work, is is they they felt at some point a calling, and it was often like very very strong. And and I think to a lot of people that may sound crazy to other people that may not sound crazy. Um, but I think until it happens, it, it, it does seem like kind of a foreign thing. Do you, did you have a sense at the time or do you have maybe a, a different sense now in retrospect, looking back, like, like why you were being called or, or what, what it was that was, that was calling you? I mean, you said very specifically like ayahuasca, but do you have a sense of like beneath that, like what, what in you was, was being called to, to that? Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I put the intention, I think before the first time I worked with ayahuasca of like finding a more authentic spiritual practice. Uh, I grew up in a really Christian part of, of Canada and, you know, my family was involved, but not like, really dogmatic about it um but I just feel like there's something about it that never really fit and but there was a part of me that wanted that connection and so I think that's the intention I put out there and then ayahuasca came on my path and so I, I think it was just that thirst of you know really getting to know myself of exploring um when I was in Peru in 2012, not at the temple, at a different center, um, yeah, the healer there told me, he said, you have, he said, I think you have a lot of work to do in Peru. And I mean, that center offered me a job. I didn't take it <laughs> for lots of reasons, but he said, yeah, I think you have work. He said, I think you'll come back and you'll, you'll work. And I didn't really think much of it at the time. Um, 
But I think it was this really beautiful combination of where uh, personal exploration and the process to be near the plants and do dietas kind of met meaningful work. Um, and ultimately, I think working with people as well helps you learn more about yourself at the same time. Um, and I just, I, yeah, I guess I really, I don't know if it's believed in the work I would see people do. It was just, I, I guess the, the, once again, the way I kind of conceive of it is this idea of coming back to themselves. So coming back to more of that authenticity. Um, Gabor Mate has a theory called authenticity versus attachment. And so the idea is that when you're growing up, you have to choose that attachment and you disconnect from that authenticity because you need it to survive. And as an adult, um, the bigger need is for that authenticity. And so we have to kind of unlearn some of those patterns of attachment or those disconnections from our different parts of ourselves that we had to subdue because people didn't like it or it wasn't accepted or wasn't space for our feelings or kind of the long list. So um, I guess it was, yeah, my own search for, for authenticity. Do you, do you remember like what those, those first ceremonies were like for you? I mean, you said you, you were working first in Canada and so maybe a bit about those. And then also when you came down to Peru, because I often find those those early ceremonies are there's something quite special about them because it often is something very foreign, something very new. Uh, it's the first time we're we're connecting with something that's just it, it's very different from our kind of our normal waking state of life. Um, so, do you remember those? I mean, not that you have to like describe the details or anything personal, <laughs> but um, was I mean because often you know it's interesting too because I think very often when people do find themselves drawn to this work, those, those early ceremonies are in a way somehow transformational. It's like something that, that, that draws us in, in a way and makes us want to kind of, to go deeper, to, to come back for more, that there's a realization that there's more to explore. Um, was that the case for you? Or do you remember anything that, that kind of came up in those early ones? Yeah, I, I did a like, long weekend basically the first one on a island here on the west coast um and yeah one particular i guess like vision that i can remember from that was actually walking through my parents home and there was all of these like in every room there was like a different kind of set of feelings and moments and people from my life and so I feel like the first, and that kind of, I feel like summarizes that first year in terms of this like falling apart that I mentioned earlier. Um, I feel like it just kind of opened up a lot of feeling that had been stored in my body and I just kind of had to go into it. Um, and so it was, yeah, those, those weekends were kind of challenging in terms of that first weekend was challenging. It was just like, oh, here's all this stuff that you need to digest. <laughs> Here it is. And you're going to feel it. And it was pretty clear to me, like, not to go back right away. It was like, yeah, like, wait a year or, or something like that. Um, and so I, I, I think I just had to kind of feel it and go into it. And so there's a lot of, like, processing uh, stuff related to my family. And 
I think these things that, because my life was actually pretty good, like before I was working with ayahuasca, I had a good community. I liked where I lived. I had meaningful work. Um, but I guess it was just a sense that there was something deeper there that I wasn't dealing with. And I think that also has to do with some of the conditioning I was, I was brought up with as a kid. Um, you know, not to, not to blame my parents just is what it is at this point. But, um, and so it kind of opened up like, I feel like the champagne bottle of like, here's all this stuff and you need to just go with it and be with it and feel it. And so it got, like I said, it got pretty dark for a while. And then I did go back a year later and I sat with the same healer. Um, and at that point it was like, <laughs> it's kind of stereotypical, this kind of whole death, rebirth, uh, these archetypal processes. Um, I think the first ceremonies again were pretty dark when I went back that second time but then there was this process of okay something has shifted um in terms of like I, I i guess some of the language i would probably use now to describe it was like okay you've kind of gone in and you've gave given space to some of these things that i needed some space basically um and then yeah there was yeah lots of images of kind of rebirth and uh, moving from like darkness to light, which is is pretty cliche in a lot of ways, but I, I really do believe in these archetypal processes that can happen for people. And um, a lot of people talk about this idea of death and rebirth. Um, and, you know, I think death is a lot around like, yeah, actually going into what's there. And sometimes it means a letting go of things that are no longer in service. And sometimes I think it's also an honoring of the things that happened. Um, and I think it's the process of ongoing death. You know, if, if you work with these medicines, ultimately it often means that you're on a process of working with change, whatever that is. If it's changing your mind, your, your environment, your inner world, um, your practices, how you talk to someone. Uh, and there's, there's going to be a lot of death and grief that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's an interesting point you bring up um, that after you, you worked with ayahuasca for the first time, you said your, your life kind of fell apart. And some people may be familiar with that, but I think for a lot of people, the idea would be I'm coming down, I'm working with these sacred plants, these, these ancient traditions, because it's going to be amazing and my life is going to get better. Um, so I think mm -hmm. to some people that that seems kind of paradoxical, like why would you want to work with this if your <laughs> life is going to fall apart? Um, but would you say that's also like the process of death and rebirth it is like, first there has to be a dying away before we can begin to, to rebuild ourselves. We, we kind of have to go into the darkness before we can get a better sense of, of what truly is that light. I think eventually someone's path is going to, I guess that in my mind, it's like, you know, a lot of people are really fixed on this idea of ascension and wanting to go up. But if the roots aren't attended to, you know, if you just think about plants, like if you have root rot, <laughs> that's not going to build a healthy plant. And so I think there is a, a Western fixation on 
fixing it all and a magic cure-all and, you know, like buying your way out of or consuming your way out of a certain state or what's happening. And so um, for many years, I've done application calls for the temple. And that's one of the things I feel actually really strongly about is how to like kindly, <laughs> kindly address someone's expectations um, that they're going to feel a certain way at the end of this retreat, because most people have some sense of this is how I want to feel. I'm going to go to the jungle 12 days. I'm going to feel this way. And then I want that feeling to stay. <laughs> I don't want those more difficult or challenging or darker, whatever you want to call those emotions or feelings or states uh, or thoughts to come back. And I think it's one of the kind of, you know, when I, when I talk to people, I always say to them, you know, you have to be willing for this can happen. You could have a period where things fall apart, where you have to go into that difficulty, where you have to kind of be with, like, do you have tools to manage that? How is it for you now when stressful things come up? Like, what do you do? How do you react? What's your support network like? Um, sometimes that lasts two weeks for people. Sometimes it lasts a year. Sometimes I've seen it last over a year uh, with some clients that I've worked with. And so it's like, are you willing, I think you have to be willing to kind of go into, again, using these kind of um, cliche terms as the shadow content, uh, if you're wanting to engage in these plants. I, in terms of like, I just think working at the temple and seeing so many people go through, like some people are really wanting to go into that stuff. Um, and then they go there and they have all of these really like, connected blissful joyful loving kind experiences and at some level that's probably what they need and for other folks like that's actually some of the harder content to integrate is their beauty or their self-worth or their love or that they're deserving of love um, you know that can be just as difficult as your shame or your fear um, or you know some of the things that, that you're guilty about or your sadness or whatever that is, you know, for, I think for folks and even Jung talks about this idea of the golden shadow. So when we push things down in our lives, these kind of darker emotions, we can also push down um, some of these kind of more beautiful or the, the kind of more desired elements of ourself. And so this idea of that, you know, you can push down that, that connectivity, that love, that creativity, you know, these things can also be something that people need to kind of um, put some intention in, uh, in order to, to connect with. The, these plants like ayahuasca, they, they, oh. they can work in many different ways, but you, you mentioned this idea, which I also really like, uh, this idea of archetype. Um, do you have a sense from your own experience and, and also, as you mentioned, I, I think both of us, we, we've been kind of blessed in a way to, to have worked with so many people because I, I think there yeah. are certain archetypes that, that we can begin to see. Obviously, this is a big question, um, but do you have a sense of, we're talking about ayahuasca right now, but do you have a sense of, of how it's trying to work or, or, or what it's what it's actually doing because again i think a lot of people have ideas about these things um but 
you know, it, it's an interesting thing that, that, I mean, we can only really see the world through our own perspective. And, and so often that really shapes how we see things. But I think you mentioned this really interesting idea of part of, part of this work for you has been working on yourself, but also working with so many other people. And I think that really opens a different expanse of, of how we can see things. So through all of that work, have you seen that, or do you, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that anyone is ever going to understand exactly how these things are working, but do you have a sense of maybe some of these archetypes of, of, of how a plant like ayahuasca is working and, and how it's ultimately helping people? Yeah, that is a big question. Um, I did, I mean, I, I did a series with my friend Ido about these different archetypes that we feel like are the most kind of common ones that come up in that process. Um, so, I mean, I can list the ones we talked about. Um, you know, I, again, I think there's, there's some ones that I see consistently and um, at the same time, that's where the individual path is going to show up in terms of what that person needs. Um, and so I guess to me, I feel like ayahuasca more generally is in plant medicines, I think generally as well. I think they work in different ways and I think they have different qualities and, you know, even things like MDMA, you know, that has a really beautiful spot in this work as well. Um, but I think the intention of them generally, how I understand it, uh, yeah, is to help us kind of contact different parts of ourselves, uh, And then also from there, something larger. And, you know, I've seen so many people come down and their experience is just really physical and, you know, that's what they needed. Um, or other people kind of go on these visionary journeys and that's what they needed. And, and then one night it's physical for someone and the next night it's this, very visual experience. Um, and then in terms of the archetypes, yeah, I think a lot of, there's a lot in terms of this idea of death, rebirth. Um, and even this kind of idea of hell is another kind of, that's one we talked about in the series we did. We did death, rebirth, hell. We did mother, father, child. Um, I think those are, are archetypes that people need to bounce up against in terms of just working through their own personal history. And um, oftentimes the internalization of those archetypes. So if you had a really controlling mother, how that's still showing up in your psyche and in your personality and, you know, how you can choose to work with this and how do you work with the, the physical mother, uh, whoever that was for you, uh, the internalized mother, and then also this idea of a spiritual mother um, and how you can, start to shift your relationship. You know, that's been a really big thermometer for me in terms of this work is where am I at with my physical mother? Like, how am I relating to her? Um, and where does that speak in terms of where I'm at with my process? And, um, and then we also looked at the healer, the victim, uh, and the serpent. So those were the ones we did in, in our archetype series. And so I feel like they're those are a lot of the common ones that come up. And I think, you know, eventually, ideally in this work, whatever that is, even if it's just working with yourself, you know, developing some form of that inner healer um, can be really important. And sometimes that can be uh, a vision where people can get really lost in it as well in terms of wanting to become a, 
an ayahuasquero after having one ceremony um, or, you know, becoming Jesus after one ceremony or something like this. Uh, but, you know, how to come into the balance with, in terms of that idea of how to hold space for yourself, how to um, also be, you know, be kind to others. One thing that I really appreciated, um, there is one of the healers at the temple that I was working with um, was talking to me about, you know, having kind thoughts essentially is kind of what I would boil it down to that on some level, I needed to also start to work to like clean my thoughts in terms of how I view others and the world and that that was a huge piece of the work. And if you're going to want to work with this family, that's a piece of, they were just, you know, talking to me about it, that that's a piece of their, their practice of their dieta is that you need to be operating from a certain mind space um, because that's how you amplify the plants essentially. And so um, I think there's, uh, yeah, the victim isn't, I don't know if that's like a classic uh, archetype. I don't think it is, but I think in many ways, the victim is something that people have to brush up against in this work as well, in terms of where am I taking responsibility? Where am I not? You know, I think personally, I believe that sometimes we need to be validated and we need connection and we need to just have someone hold our hold our feelings and be with us in our experience. Um, and then at some point, you know, that becomes a real, um, you know, maladaptive characteristic for someone where they really over identify with the victim and that's kind of operating their life. And it's not to place any judgment on anyone who's going through that experience. And then at some point, I think they have to, they have to grapple with that. You know, is that something they want to, build a relationship with that's the whole the whole idea of this archetype series was building a relationship with these different parts of ourself and you know the victim it's like if you consciously are being a victim and you're okay with that that's okay for now you know I, i'm not the person to judge that and maybe someone's been like dealt a really hard a hard life and you know i i get that and if, if that's where they're at that's okay um but just to to name it yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, you, you brought up a couple interesting points. Um, I had actually never thought about that in that way, but often with this work, um, there's these three levels that are being worked on the, the physical, the, the mental, emotional, and the spiritual. And, and that idea of the mother was really interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's actually pointing to just that. Like there's, there's a physical mother, the, the mother we have in this reality. There's the, the, the mental, emotional mother, like how we mother yeah. ourselves, how we care for ourselves. And then the, the spiritual one, which is, you know, how do we connect with the divine mother, the, 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 the creator, the, the, the nurturer. So, so that's very interesting. Um, it's it's something that that it's one of the things that I find very interesting. We were talking a little bit about before we started recording, but kind of this idea of like this pendulum that kind of shifts between extremes. And I think that the victim archetype is is like really one of the more powerful embodiments of that because mm -hmm. taken to either extreme, it can be out of balance. It can be problematic if if we say well 
there's no validity in being a victim, then it, it in a way kind of negates the initial experience. And very much yeah. as, as you were saying, this death rebirth, like part of that death is we have to go into that, that experience to, to really bring it to light. And then the other extreme being this idea of, you know, complete uh, avoiding that or, or having disregarded it to the point where we pretend it no longer exists also in the name of power and, and kind of where do you find is that balance? Do you, do you think, because again, the, the victim is such a powerful archetype. I mean, I think especially in these the, the, the days we're living in, I mean, it, it's very apparent in, in politics and life and how we relate to each other. It's, um, I mean, I remember growing up, it was more of that, I think, end of the spectrum of like, well, let's not talk about that. Like, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Like, yeah. But it seems like we're also moving now towards this phase of, of readjusting to that, but moving towards the other extreme, which is like, that's, that's our identity. Let's feed that. Let's continue that going. And, and the more of a victim you are, like the more attention you get, the, the more empowerment you get. So where do you think is that, is that balance? Is that also represented in the, in the archetype of death rebirth, that it's, it's something we have to go into? We, we can't ignore it. We have to fully go into it, but then eventually the, the rebirth part is, is recognizing that, like, integrating that and then in essence freeing ourselves of that and and not in a way where we don't recognize that it didn't happen it's just through our own power we can we can decide and and also not just through the mind you know it, it's yeah. kind of like you're talking about christianity it, it's not this idea of like i say i believe in jesus and then my my life is good <laughs> it's a real embodying that like really like do i truly believe that not only in my thoughts but in my actions do i embody that and do i embody that idea of like i'm no longer a victim not because i just say that because i've actually worked through it and now i I've, i'm owning that power to where that thing no longer has has that force in my life yeah, I guess for me personally, I don't believe in like, I guess a lot, I, I do believe that a lot of our patterns and stuff is going to come back. Like we're going to have a crappy day and we're going to want to blame blah, 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 blah for the way we're feeling or what's happening or reality or I, I mean, think of COVID as a, a huge example right now. Um, and so I, I think there's some sort of balance there you know I think there can be a movement towards being more empowered and more aware of what's happening in our inner world or the patterns um, in terms of when you're acting out being a victim like I think you can get more familiar of oh this is happening but sometimes I think it just gets sneakier <laughs> in terms of <laughs> it's like oh I think I'm being really justified in this certain way but actually that might be you know that might be propelled from this wound um and so you know i once again i don't think the the goal here is to kind of judge ourselves when we're having these experiences i think it's just to be aware of it or you know or to own hey i'm feeling a little bit like a victim here i'm just needing a hug okay you know that's a very different conversation um than 
when these things are just really kind of unconsciously driving a lot of our actions. And so I think that's the work, again, this idea of coming into relationship with these processes that we go through and these, you know, personality traits that we've developed because those were the best thing we learned how to do to get our needs met in our lifetime. And so to have a lot of compassion for that and then to also say, okay, and I'm wanting to do something differently. And, you know, there's one thing I appreciate about dialectical behavioral therapy is they have this um, difference, you know, they, they hold these kind of tension of opposites of how do you accept someone as they are and how do you also try and encourage them to change at the same time and that tension that causes between those two and there's something about that that really personally resonates for me um, and I think we need that kind of inner love and acceptance of okay this is where I'm at I'm having a shitty day I'm having a shitty week um, and there's also another part of us that says okay and I want to do something different this time and how do I give my compassion to myself or ask for compassion from someone else that I'm hurting right now? And how do I also, yeah, this kind of old school mentality that I grew up with too of like, suck it up, <laughs> don't cry, um, get on with it, basically. Um, I think there's, there's some beauty in that too of like, okay, yes. And I think we also need to have some balance there. And so you mentioned that as well in terms of that, that balance you know, it's it's going to be, once again, really different for everyone. And for some people, I think this, I, there's one thing I like from this group Process Work Institute in Portland, the guy's name is Arnie Mandel, and he talks about this idea of what's someone's primary process? So what's their kind of default? And then how do you bring in, he calls it their secondary process. How do you bring in something that's a little more foreign to them? You know, it's there, but it's a little less in terms of their default way of operating and so I think for some folks maybe they kind of go into that collapse have all their feelings want to get picked up by someone else but for someone else they might kind of go into the bypass their feelings um, it's not affecting me it's not hurting me um, and then actually underneath that there's a lot of pain so I think again it's about figuring out where you're at and what how do you kind of support yourself to do something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. When you came to the, the Peruvian Amazon, you ended up spending a number of years there. What, what was that like for you? Were there, were there certain challenges? Um, I mean, I'm sure there was a tremendous learning, growing experience, but what was, what was that like? Because then you also mentioned it was a bit difficult leaving and, and like reintegrating into your old life, into this more like kind of Western life. So what were, are there any like experiences or, you know, archetypes, things that, that stand out from, from that experience of, of your time in the jungle? Um, yeah, I guess I, I've been reflecting on it a lot recently and like, a little bit nostalgic for it in a way. And I've talked with some other folks too who uh, have had similar moments of that. Um, I mean, you're living in a small community in the Amazon, which is a pretty hard environment to live in, uh, dealing with a very powerful medicine that is eventually there to stir people's stuff up. 
And so there's a lot of challenges in that. And there's a lot of beautiful opportunity in that. And so I guess I kind of see it as a pressure cooker of, <laughs> of internal experience and kind of collective experience, uh, this kind of transpersonal element. Um, but ultimately I, I stayed and there was something that was really, like I, I got a lot from that experience or something in me that was really being called there again and called to stay there. And so I think it was like probably some of the most magical times and in moments, some of the most difficult times. Uh, but ultimately, I think, again, it allowed me to get in touch with a lot more parts of myself, um, a lot more like conflicts would happen between people in terms of just living there in community disagreements. So also in a way like simultaneously opening up my worldview and my perspectives and also solidifying certain things in terms of actually this feels really right to me um, and learning in terms of where, where those boundaries are for myself. And I think the, the biggest thing, you know, there's, again, there's the personal journey and then there was also the journey of working with, with clients and just seeing folks come uh, and be able to open themselves in ways that, you know, a lot of them would say I haven't been able to in a very long period of time. Um, and yeah, just a really safe environment for folks to explore themselves with a very powerful tool of, of ayahuasca and the other plants that were working there. And I think, you know, the, the healers as well were just such a, a joyful part in terms of being there, like just hearing their laughter <laughs> constantly. And I think it was a really beautiful process in like breaking down my worldview in terms of coming from a Western perspective where things here are pretty much talked about in terms of the mind, uh, maybe a little bit of emotions, definitely not so much mention of spirit. Um, body for sure, they talk about the physical body, but then going into stepping into that worldview and I, I feel like uh, only a tiny baby and understanding uh, the Shipibo worldview and cosmology after years of being there and a lot of conversations. Um, but yeah, I think a, a big part of it was also just learning a different way and experiencing. And again, as you're talking about earlier, like embodying a different way, like having that kind of settle into some of my body and, um, I think that was so refreshing for me and just something I was, I was really longing for in terms of um, coming from a pretty sick culture. And again, I feel like I had a pretty privileged upbringing because I had a really big family and I grew up in nature. And so I just like in the summer, we would just go outside and we'd get like, they'd yell our names when it was time to come back and eat basically. <laughs> so um you know, I had a, I had a really beautiful connection with nature growing up and uh, just being outside and with a lot of caring people. Um, but there was still something that I feel like was, was missing for me. And so having a, a taste of that with the healers was, was just so refreshing. Um, and then to see what was possible, like what was possible in a 12 day retreat for someone or in the, the 20, 
it changed throughout the, the 28 or 23 or 21 day retreat for folks. Um, and so, yeah, I think just constantly seeing people coming alive again or experiencing their, their anger or their shame or their fear or their joy or their creativity um, was just such a, such an honor. Um, someone reached out to me um, tomorrow uh, to, to do an interview, um, although this podcast is being delayed. So when we come out, it will have already been shot. But uh, I'm going to kind of cheat because it's actually a question on uh, what does it take to be a good facilitator? <laughs> So uh, I'm going to ask you uh, so that hopefully you can give me some answers for the interview tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> From your experience, you know, you know, starting first doing this work on yourself, working in Canada, coming down to the jungle, beginning, as you said, to really open up to a different way of being, opening up to a different cosmovision. And then... Uh, uh, and then really, it's always a tricky word, but facilitating or guiding, you know, helping to, to run these ceremonies. What are things that you found that, that, that allow one to do that well? Because like anything, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to come in with views, and, and hopefully those change. You know, hopefully, as you said, we begin to grow, we begin to change, we begin to do it better. Are there things that, that, that you see that, that allow one to, to hopefully do that work better? Because um, I think it's also a growing question is as this work becomes more widespread, there, there's, a, there's a growing interest in, in, in that kind yeah. of work. Um, but again, I think there's a lot of, I don't know what the word is, but interesting views of, of what that may really entail. So... From your experience, if anyone is listening, I mean, maybe just for their own curiosity, but also if someone is listening and maybe they feel a calling to that, what do you, what do you think that process is like? And, and is there anything that you, from your own experience, have, have learned? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot you've learned. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> um, yeah, I would love to hear your perspective on that as well. Um, yeah, I think there's one thing from a training I did pre-Temple Days where um, it was someone who worked a lot with like inner city youth, basically. And that was our, you know, different youth that had a lot of cards stacked against them, I would say, in different capacities. And he said something that always stuck with me. He said, if you can't see the good, you know, and I'll use good in quotations in someone you can't, you can't work with them. And so I feel like that's kind of what I keep in my heart in terms of when I facilitate or now do integration sessions with people um, in terms of seeing like, yeah, what's right with someone. Cause usually folks are coming to this work with, you know, what's not working in their life. And so I think to also be able to see beyond that is really important. Um, and I think it takes a long time to learn how to ask good questions. I think there's a stage that a process that people often go through where at first it's like they want to express their opinion. 
and their views. And then I think like there's some process of getting yourself out of the way. Um, and then eventually being able to do more of this inquiry work, however you want to frame that. Uh, and there's so many different, you know, I think there's so many modalities that can support you in terms of that learning. I find somatic experiencing incredibly helpful because it brings people to the present, it brings them into their bodies. Uh, it's kind of, it's working on the nervous system level, which is, you know, from my belief, um, a lot of what's driving what we're doing, or at least our responses to what's happening. Um, but I think, I also think accountability is really important. So having people you talk to. So I'm also part of a group running. We're just finishing our seconds. We're running um, groups for therapists. So I'm working with Ido Cohen, Dr. Ido Cohen and Kyle Buller from Psychedelics Today. And we're running group for therapists who are interested in this work and interested in doing integration work. And we just kind of bring consultations in terms of talk about where we're struggling, um, what's working. We talk about different themes and topics. And I think it's really important and it's also really lacking. I know when you're working in an organization like the temple, that's there in terms of you debrief kind of naturally often with your other facilitators in terms of like what's working, what's not working. I'm really stuck with this person. But I think a lot of folks, and as this work is about to explode in North America in terms of psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine uh, work. I think there's a lot of that missing like peer consultation in terms of, and supervision as well uh, in terms of, you know, it raises really good questions of who's, who's qualified to do that. That's a really big question. Uh, a lot of therapists aren't trained to talk about these kind of more spiritual elements. You know, I, we did a workshop in Vancouver and a woman shared that she talked about visions with someone from the Western medical system. And then she ended up being hospitalized just from a, a lack of understanding. Um, and so not to blame that professional, but it's just like, it's a very different worldview. And so I think there needs to be more of this bridging of worldviews. And I think, again, having um, something from some experience, personal experience in these different systems and ways of processing. So if that's some form of spiritual path that's connected with some kind of plant medicine or, you know, it could be also um, connecting with local indigenous people wherever they're living or some of their own ancient traditions. If you're, so I'm white, my ancestry is European, um, a different combination. So some version of connecting with those traditions that are still there, but a little bit harder to access. And so some version of having that connection, I think something involving psychology is helpful and supportive and some other way of, of learning tools for, for inquiry. Um, and then this balance of that we've kind of, I feel like we've been dancing throughout this conversation of this balance of like, when do you be firm and kind? Or, and then like, when are you more kind of allowing? Um, and, you know, I'd say probably you are more on the firm side and I might be more on the like <laughs> loving kind side. And, but just to know those different places in ourselves, like in terms of, you know, I, I think of, some ceremonies and someone's really falling apart, nothing's working, sitting there being quiet. And, and sometimes you have to be really firm, like, 
you know, find your center, uh, come back to yourself, find your breath. And then sometimes you actually, it might be the moment to sit there and hold them and, you know, give them some comfort. And so I think it's to kind of tune into that intuition and develop that through making mistakes, unfortunately, um, and learning, but, you know, keeping the attitude of learning uh, and how to take responsibility when you do mess up. So I don't know, that's, it's a huge topic, but <laughs> do you have anything you want to add? No, no, I, I think that was beautiful. Um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I think for me, probably the essence, if, if it had to be boiled down to one thing, is, is just doing the work on ourselves and, and through that process. You know, as, as you said, like that idea of empathy, of seeing the good in people, uh, I think that like also as you were talking about earlier, like that going into the darkness of ourselves and, and emerging from that. And I think that that breeds like a natural compassion. It breeds a natural understanding. And it also in a way breeds a natural, I mean, the word that's coming to me now, but it's not exactly correct, but but a type of mastery and, and not a mastery in that it's it's set and, and I know everything I know. Obviously there's always growing and there's always change, but a mastery in the sense that if, if I'm sitting next to someone and, and they're, they're in a really dark place, um, if I've been there or, you know, again, I, I can never know exactly every little detail about what they're going through. But again, in this, this, these terms of archetypes, if I've been in, in that archetypical situation, can I guide them? And if I haven't really been in that, maybe I can, but it's not going to have the same resonance as if, if I've been there and I can genuinely tell them like, it is okay. Not from a yeah. place like I read that in a manual or I hope it's okay. <laughs> Everyone told me this is okay, um, but that it really is. And, and not only have I seen it in myself, but I've seen it in, yeah. in hundreds of people. And, and I think that's very powerful because people feel that. Uh, there's a sense of comfort. Yeah. There's, there's a sense of being held in a way, even if it's not physically being held, but just being held in a space. Um, it was interesting. I, 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 I just finished uh, running a... Uh, some dietas uh, with Marav, a, a friend and colleague of mine. And we, we had a guy come back. Um, he had done two previous diets and, and he stayed for another, ended up being four. He was only going to stay for two, but he, he just felt called to keep going. But he was saying it was really funny because he, prior to that, he had gone to another ayahuasca center and was sitting. And uh, before, like he could never sit the whole ceremony. He was actually kind of like afraid of the shaman. Like when they came to sing to him, he'd like go to the back of his mat. Uh, but he found, and, you know, again, according to him, he attributed it to the diets, but to what degree, you know, I, I don't know, but that's what he felt. And, you know, he was saying that through this process of dieting, like he was able to sit there and, and kind of, again, the archetypes of some of the plants he was dieting, the, these trees, tobacco, like he felt like it was giving him that strength to sit there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, <laughs> he said it turned out to be kind of bad because the, the facilitators, they, they thought nothing was happening because, you know, everyone else was like <laughs> flopping around and crying and screaming and he was just sitting there. So they, every ceremony, they kept doubling his dose. <laughs> 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 and you know internally he was like going on this wild journey um but in group share 
uh, people would say to him like, Hey, like your, your presence, it just, when I was struggling, like it gave me strength. Like uh, I saw you as this father figure. Like I, I saw you as like a, a caregiver, even though again, all he was doing was just sitting there and he, he wasn't trying to do that. He, he had no intention of doing that, but, but people kind of fed off of that. And, uh, so, yeah, I think in that way, it's it, it's really doing this work on ourselves. And, uh, you know, as we do that, we're like anything, we're, we're better able to, to hold that space for other people. And um, and it is it's it's a constant journey. And it's it's, uh, you know, something really interesting, even with my process is. I had done, you know, a lot of plant medicine work. I, I was at the temple for a year, you know, drinking a lot, um, doing dietas. And, and then I left to do a longer process of dieting. Um, and then I came back and that really opened up, uh, especially like ayahuasca in, in a completely yeah. different way. And, and it, you know, I, I was feeling kind of just... Uh, these benefits and these things I had learned, but, but then I had a really, really challenging experience where it was even really difficult to facilitate myself because all of the things I would say to someone else, I couldn't say to myself because I had actually never experienced that before. Mm. Um, so, you know, I couldn't say, you know, it went on for like three days and I had never seen that before. And so I couldn't say, well, it's going to pass because, I hadn't seen someone have that experience for three days in the past. So, you know, I was questioning my sanity. I was questioning everything. Um, but even, you know, from there, there was, there was a real stepping back. And I mean, even before that, I had had a sense that actually my work was actually transferring more towards the internal work, towards the external work, towards I was actually what I needed to do was to, to work, to work with other people. And through that, there was going to be a tremendous learning experience for myself. Um, you know, and it was also funny because someone asked me the other day, they said, Oh, well, you know, like that, that's really service work. Like it's like karma yoga. And I was like, yeah, you know, to some degree that's true, but it was also my own work. And, you know, through that working with other people that really transformed me in a way too. Like it taught me a yeah. lot. So uh, you know, kind of a long answer, but I think there's, there's really, there, there's no shortcut. It's, it's, uh, um, yeah. and I think it's something also we're, we're missing a bit in society is, as you said, like we want to consume our way through something or we want to buy it or we want a certificate or uh, we want someone to tell us like, okay, now, now you're ready for this. And, you know, for, for better, for worse, I think there just really is no substitution for, for time and effort and wisdom and, um Again, something I think we've lost a bit in our culture is like that wisdom of the elders, because if nothing else, like they have time, they have experience, they've seen things, they work through things. And there's, there's a tremendous power in that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, that's true. With, um, with ayahuasca, uh, I mean, I guess the, the question could be with any plant medicine, but Specifically with ayahuasca, it's always an interesting, I think, maybe question that comes up, which is this idea, because I always find it fascinating, and I'm sure you, you've heard it many, many times, is someone will say something like, well, ayahuasca told me X, Y, and Z, <laughs> therefore it must be true. 
Because again, it's this idea, well, it's coming from spirit. It's coming from a higher source. Therefore, any information I receive, uh, it has a certain authority. It, it has an, an element of truth to it. Um, and yet at the same time, I think something, one of the fascinating things about working with so many people is you see these medicines point towards so many things. And it's it's almost like it, it has to be spoken to through the lens of the person. Like that's, I mean, kind of obviously, but that's the only way that they can truly take in what they need to be taught or, or what they need to experience. Like it has to be in a language even, you know, that, that they understand. It's, you know, for the Shipibo, they sing in Shipibo. Uh, if you're a Shuar, you you sing in Shuar. It's, so it's not necessarily like a universal language per se, a universal experience, but something that's also very personal. So talking about balance, and, and again, this is a big question, um, but do you think there are like universal truths or archetypal experiences that that a plant like ayahuasca is pointing towards and yet it has to do it through the lens of the person that it's working with or is it just completely this idea that you know all truth is personal and 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 everything is is seen through our lens or do you sense that there is like some higher whatever we want to call it spirit god consciousness that is trying to teach us certain universal or, or fundamental principles that actually are for our own benefit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <No. laughs> um, I Again, I don't know if it's just, I don't really personally like big dichotomies. Um, so I think there's a bit of both that's present. Um, you know, I think I remember one workshop, there was a comedian in the group and a lot of his experiences was like through jokes and other people were getting pissed off <laughs> <laughs> because they were like, why is he having a good time? And when he's talking about it, he's talking in jokes. And um, I was like, well, that's his world. You know, that's how he processes a lot of information and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. And again, this idea of this kind of classic saying in these these worlds that you I think it comes from Michael Brown originally from the presence process but that you get what you need not what you want and so I think there's a couple different parts to your question I think there's um, in terms of someone might just need a deep physical cleaning and that's the level in terms of where they're they're at and what they need and there's that's perfect for what what they need and so they may have you know I've I had one guest come back saying I didn't have much of experience but everyone saw a difference in me so I decided to come back uh, and would just have these experiences of vomiting each night and purging um, and not much else would happen and but decided to come back which I thought was pretty fascinating um, so I think there's kind of that that personal filter and language um, but I also think that it can also exaggerate certain things that are maybe more like narcissistic sometimes and can amplify certain parts of the personality that I wouldn't say are aligned with like a, a creator or a spirit or whatever that is. Um, so I guess there's a lot of stuff to be worked out on the personal kind of filter and personality and, and system. So body, emotions, mind, spirit. So I think there's, that's true. And then I also think that 
for a lot of people, um, there have been a lot of messages that do overlap in terms of, you know, care and compassion. And I've seen a lot of people start to care more in terms of their impact, be it on other people, on the environment, on themselves, how they're treating themselves, um, and a call to service in a variety of, of ways. So if that's like these little moments of just taking care of the plants, but really like mindfully that are around them and that feeling like a call to service, or if it's creating a, a, a game that has environmental impact, or if it's, you know, feeling called to do uh, this type of work of working with plant medicines or facilitation, or um, I would definitely think that that is a theme that I've seen a lot. And then I, I guess I, I believe in there's kind of a both and there. Um, because we're all in different places and we all need different things. Uh, and I think it also depends on where someone's at in their personal process of, of getting to know themselves. Yeah. We, we've been talking a lot about ayahuasca, um, but are there, there are other plants that you've worked with that have kind of had a significant impact on you? And um, in, because you also mentioned this idea that the different plants have have their place, like they they each have their own way of working. Um, obviously, where we had worked for a long time, uh, it's predominantly focused on ayahuasca. But are there other plants you've worked with also that have kind of had an impact on you that that you feel have have been teachers in a way for you? Yeah, tobacco, um, definitely. Um, I think that in some ways at the time kind of towards the end of my time in the jungle, I feel like tobacco was more of the thing I would turn to in terms of like finding my center. I feel like tobacco was very, I mean, it's many, many things, but um, it very much kind of would bring me back to my center pretty quickly. Um, Or sometimes ayahuasca would take me. (laughs) It would kind of, uh, disintegrate me maybe a little bit more than than tobacco would and there's beauty in both I think um, and then uh, yeah there's tons of plants that I feel have taught me things and then even non-psychoactive plants like building relationships with them um, like rose is a really big one for me in terms of just as a as something that yeah I, I feel the deep kind of guidance and protection and relationship with that plant. Uh, And I think even just the process of growing plants has taught me a lot about plants. Uh, So growing some of my own food and I'm obsessed with dahlias, (laughs) their type of flower. So like having that process of interacting with plants, um, the place we lived before this, we had a really big greenhouse and really big area for growing. So like about giving them care, about giving them the conditions that they need in order to survive, about how to work with pests. And you could use that metaphor in terms of what are the pests in our lives? Um, How do you cultivate something from a seed to fruit, like all the way through and what, just also that process of, of growing something and, and, and sticking with it, or even host plants in a way of how do you, give them the care. So I guess 
in some ways I feel like this work has really opened me up to a lot of just kind of a deeper relationship with nature and uh, you know, having a child, I've taken a big step back from this work in terms of ingesting a lot of the time, although I still use my pipe. Um, but that was actually really important for me in terms of taking a step back and just being like, okay, that, I think that was really important for my own integration of taking a break and being like, well, what does this mean when I'm in the, the 3D reality with the screaming child and you know just having to be with be with what's happening in terms of you know I feel like that idea that you're talking about of having that knowing in your in your body and your spirit of that this is going to pass like that's one of the best training you can have for a parent uh, in terms of that capacity to just know that this will pass and some days I'm better at that and some days I'm not and that's okay too um and so, I, yeah, I guess the, I feel like it's about being in relationship ultimately, like these plants kind of bring you to that. So I'd say tobacco was really huge for me in um, doing the dietas with, with your teacher as well, with Ernesto. Uh, and then I, I guess I'm getting more curious. I, I've done, read a lot of the research on like MDMA uh, work for PTSD and psilocybin for depression and uh, have a little bit of experience with both and I, I guess I'm, I'm personally getting more and more curious about like what medicines are right for people what environment is right for people and I think I'm getting a lot more nuanced in my own thinking around that so like chemically how MDMA works it actually allows you to access you know why it's so effective for PTSD it allows you to act access the activation that's still stored again if I use the the view of your nervous system uh, without all of the things that normally shut you down. So it allows you to stay in relationship to what's happening inside of you and also with the therapist. And so for someone with PTSD, I, I might actually say MDMA might be a better option for you um, and doing one-to-one -one work um, or working with two therapists. That's the, the MAPS protocol. Um, that might be a better option for you over, a 12 day ayahuasca retreat in the jungle that's far away. You're not going to get as much attention. Um, I think for certain people, some of these medicines with zero judgment, it just can be too overwhelming. And I think a lot of them will go into freeze or shut down. Um, and, you know, I think the plants are still working. And if you have a talented healer or a healer who really knows what they're doing, they can still do some of that work. Um, but I think often some people aren't kind of their system system isn't able to to hold that and so it's like what is their internal container and so there's lots of people that I know that have had PTSD and have worked with ayahuasca and have seen benefits but I think it's just asking that question like what's the right container for what I need to be held am I needing more of that one-to-one -one care if you've had a lot of developmental trauma maybe you do if you've had a lot of neglect or there's been abuse and to have that reparative moment of connection, maybe that's something that would be really impactful for you. Um, you know, a lot of people speak, I've worked with Pachuma. A lot of people have talked about that as this kind of like grounded heart medicine. Like maybe that's what you need. Um, ayahuasca can be like, like I said, it can be a little bit all over the place, but I think if 
this is where the power of the Icaros come in, like to really go into some of that root work. It can be really powerful for that. Um, and then if you're, you know, I see it as like the, the university, I know that analogy gets used a lot, but these different classes that have different, different functions and different elements. Um, and so it's, a, it's kind of like, which, which one do you need? Um, with psilocybin, they talk a lot about in terms of this, this network and, um, there's one person I met here who's connected with some of the indigenous people here. And they talked a lot about it as this capacity to hold the things that weren't able to be held. So that's one of the gifts of psilocybin. It's like this whole network is there. And part of that medicine is to help you. And they call them those niños santos. So these like this, the holy children, the sacred children, um, to kind of help you go into those experiences and help you hold them and open them. You know, I think ayahuasca and I think even tobacco can do that as well. Um, and then again, aboga, the stern father idea of really this kind of, I feel like aboga is more of like a penetrative energy in terms of really kind of going into people. Um, and then that can be expansive or that could be like a, a really big, Kind of shut down so I think it's just a process of people getting curious about where they're at and um, and I think different medicines have again this idea of put me in part in touch with different parts of myself so um, I, I think they all have medicines and, and some of them like even things like growing my own tulsi and drinking the tea you know, like these kind of more herbs, I think can be a really beautiful practice and integration in terms of working with these other plants and building a relationship with them, even if it's just like this more subtle level energy um, that can be really, really powerful as well. So yeah, I, I guess I, I think this is something I want to personally stay really curious about is like what plant calls for the right, you know, is right for what person and what point of their life. And, um, and then also in terms of like, how do you also support people that, you know, might not, it might not be safe for them to work with ayahuasca. And so I know that's the other option of like them doing a dieta without something that is psychoactive um, for some of these conditions that are generally diagnosed and that, a lot of people won't give them psychoactive plants because of that. And so it's like, what, what is the right container and what's the capacity? I think are two really big questions that come up for me around that. Um, and oftentimes people have a certain idea in their head. And again, it's like that attachment to that idea versus what's actually good for them. And, you know, how can someone kind of what you were saying before, how can they start to slowly build that capacity before they come to some of this work. I think the more people can do that, um, the more beneficial and, and sometimes you're going to get thrown in the deep end no matter what. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, even, um, yeah, I've had some ceremonies where I've been like, I don't just in shock afterwards for a period of time. And on some level I, I needed that. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, I think it's a very personal thing. I think also when people are coming from a real state of desperation and, 
terms of just shifting their their state, I think that it's it's not actually the time to probably work with these plants. That's my personal stance. I think that that's when building that ground and that capacity is probably the thing to do. And then when they're feeling a little more solid, um, potentially going into it then. I know that a lot of people probably wouldn't agree with that, but that's kind of where I, I personally come from. Mm-hmm. You you spoke a little bit about this idea of dieta. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Kind of this idea of, you also said like developing a relationship with the plant and that that can obviously be done in different ways too, like growing your own plants. But what um, what do you find that process to be like? And, and, and maybe how has that been important for you? I mean, maybe just to start, like if anyone is unfamiliar, like what is a dieta and, and um, like why is, is that? In, in, in some traditions, like a very integral part of this work. Yeah, and I mean, again, just from my understanding, uh, a dieta is about creating a relationship with a plant. And so generally you work with a healer uh, who has the capacity or in a relationship often with that plant already uh, to kind of build that bridge between you and the plant in that channel. And uh, again, it's kind of like it's a pharmacy, different plants have different functions and purposes and qualities and, you know, even certain visual, the ways that they represent. Um, But yeah, it's, I mean, at the core, I really do believe it's about building relationship and that relationship will touch every person differently in terms of what they need and what's going on for them and, and this idea of opening. So I think it's this idea of opening up um internally and so i know they often talk about them in the relationship between both learning and healing so as their function so i think it can be a process of like going in and opening up different parts um to either you know i remember one dieta with ernesto i was just angry (laughs) for a week (laughs) and it was just and that's what i needed i you know, I really needed to get in touch with my anger and, um, and I was projecting it all over the place. And then eventually I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> I'm supposed to be working on my anger here. And then after that, I've had a much more connected relationship with my anger. So that's one example. Um, I think it's, yeah, opening you up to the capacity of learning, of, of healing, yourself of healing others of, of that world with the plants um, for me personally a lot comes in my dream space so a lot would be about working in my dreams with different things with different capacities um, but the essence yeah it comes down to this idea of, of connecting you know of showing you different parts of showing you different things that are there I think eventually they kind of start to drift into this world of of other in this kind of world of of healing and um having some kind of teaching qualities around that but again i can't i can't um take that away from the personal process i feel like there's always a kind of dual dynamic there of you know you're learning about about others or maybe about plants or you know i've had dreams where i've been taught certain things or different qualities of energy or um, but that always, in some ways, also comes back to my to myself. And so, um, 
I mean, I, I think you've done an episode on, on Dietas now where you talk about the practicalities of being in isolation and limiting your intake. Um, but just that process of really like limiting your input, you know, so much. I think even doing that um, alone can be a really powerful catalyst to start to notice, you know, what's there, what's underneath the surface. These are my thoughts. These are my feelings. These are my sensations. Um, these are how I view certain things. This whole, like, I'm, I can go back to that example. I was just angry about all of these different things in that dieta. And I was, okay, this is how I learn. Like, this is how I project this onto this situation. You know, all of that's really beautiful learning. Um, and then eventually learning, okay, it's obvious to me that I don't like to sit with my anger. <laughs> if I'm throwing it all around the place. Um, why does that, where does that come from? You know, that's, it's a pretty obvious one, especially for, for women, I think in a Western world or folks generally, you know, um, anger is not something that we're really taught to work with. We're generally taught to, to repress it. You know, that's not true all across the board and there's a huge cultural component to it. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't encouraged to be angry. And, uh, and so learning how to work with that and how to work with the, the benefits of that, like healthy aggression, of when to set those boundaries, of when to say no, of when to know when someone's crossing into my space, of knowing you know, my limits, my capacities. Um, there's a lot of benefits to being able to defend myself if I need to, you know, healthy aggression is a really important thing in a healthy nervous system. You need to have that capacity. And so that's just an example of like this idea of the plants can go in, they can open something up. It can be very practical, like anger, or it could be otherworldly, like you're learning these healing technologies um, from these beings in your dreams and, <laughs> and um, but again, I, I always personally try and come back to how do I ground that? And what does that mean? Okay, if I sit with that energy from my dream, what comes up for me? Um, so that's, yeah, I guess that's a little bit about the process of dietas. Yeah, great. In, in the beginning, you were speaking a bit about Gabor Mate and how you, you initially sat in ceremony with him and then you began to work with him. Um, and then eventually you did a, was it the compassionate inquiry? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, I think I even saw there's, there's a film coming out with him now. And it, it seems mm -hmm. like, especially in this work, uh, a lot of people are recognizing his work. He, he's done a lot of work with, with trauma. Um, can you describe a, a bit about his work? I mean, what, what that entails, what that means to you and, and also how you've seen that, that, that has really been able to benefit your own work. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, at the, so his work is called compassionate inquiry in terms of the modality that has kind of been developed. And I remember when, um, he didn't know if it was something that could be taught at one point. He was unsure of that. Just was like, I think it's just what I do. I don't know if this can be taught. Um, but it has been transformed into a course. But the essence of his work is to kind of, um, I would say, humanize a lot of addictions, trauma, uh, and this idea of human suffering. 
in a lot of ways. And, you know, um, again, I think his, this kind of theory of change, this authenticity versus attachment really personally for me rings true that, you know, we're all adapting the best ways we know how to in order to survive. And then as adults, we need to renegotiate that and turn more towards that authenticity. Um, that's kind of one of the core drivers of his work. And it's about, yeah, how do you also cultivate that compassion? And so compassion inquiry is, it's an inquiry process you do with people to really bring compassion to the, to the beliefs we develop as a child and basically why we developed them as like the best coping strategy we knew how to do. And, you know, I'd say Gabor in and of himself is probably like, is very like this wrathful compassion. Um, he doesn't hold back. It's very, it's very honest. Um, and he really, I, I think his magic is he tries to get to the heart of what's happening for people. And, you know, I think that works for some people. I don't think it works for everyone. Um, but really trying to humanize, you know, he's really famous for his work with addictions, you know, that we all have addictive tendencies. And that, you know, when he was working in the downtown east side, which is a, a neighborhood in Vancouver with a lot of um, homeless population and a lot of drug use, he was working with the people there. He said, you know, I saw myself in everyone. And he was talking about his own addictions. And we all have addictions in different capacities. I think every human has their things that they use to cope. And some of them are more, you know, interrupting in their lives than others. And some of them are okay in, in a lot of ways. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really about how do you help people to find that space of compassion for themselves to see that whatever they're kind of dealing with in the present moment is often related in his worldview related to something that's happened in the past that was usually just a way of people doing what they needed to do to survive. And so if you can start to work with understanding those beliefs that are driving a lot of what you do, connecting them with the body in terms of how they sit in the body, um, he does a lot of work around this idea of triggers, like when we're triggered, uh, how do we start to get curious about what's there for us in terms of, you know, he talks about this, if you think about a, a weapon or, or the trigger of a gun, the trigger is just this tiny part, but the whole kind of mechanism is like lying inside of us, basically. So there's one little moment that triggers something. And then the whole idea is about how do you kind of trace it back and then with that that compassion piece so not making ourselves wrong about it um he does a lot of questioning around like if you imagine a child in a similar situation you know this idea of almost externalizing so if you imagine a child going through a similar situation like how would you how would you think they would feel so how would you treat that child would it be okay to be treated the way you were treated? And often people will, it kind of uncovers that people have double standards for themselves versus others. And so I think it's really about trying to find all those ways. Cause usually people are a lot harder or critical on themselves than they are other people. Like I, I pretty, I feel pretty sure about that one <laughs> across the board. <laughs> and, 
Um, and so it's about how to start to kind of bring that internally in terms of how do you start to kind of shift that, that relationship with yourself kind of on that level and, you know, often start that work of, of dismantling the, the beliefs that that inner child is, is still hanging on to. Hmm. You, you had also spoke, I think you said, um, like in North America, that, that this work is really ready to explode. Um, how do you, how do you see that happening? And um, you, you also mentioned potentially like some of these issues that are going to come up, like, like who's qualified to do that? How, yeah. how do we begin to also in, in that way, like find that balance between these things because I think a lot of people look at this as like oh well this is new work and in some ways it is but it's also rooted in something very ancient which is this plant work Um, but it's being adapted for better for worse and maybe that's something you can speak about to, to the time and place we live in more clinical settings working with more Western psychotherapists, uh, more synthesized versions of these plant essences, whether it's psilocybin or, um, you know, whatever, whatever field it's going to go into. But um, maybe you can talk a little bit, a bit about that, just uh, what you see is happening and, and how you think that's going to begin to expand and grow. And then um, as, as we're talking about balance, like what are, what are some of the, the, the good and the bad that you see that comes with that? Yeah, I think it's really a mixed bag. Um, And I think it also really comes down to the intentions behind the different groups running it. Um, I think there's more and more folks that it's like a tech startup. Um, And, you know, I'm not saying that that's that's bad or good. I'm just saying, um, yeah, what's the intention behind it? Is it about profit or is it about supporting people? I think there's a really big difference there. You know, I think it's okay if it's both. I think people have to make money. They have to to work. But I think that if it's just about making money, then that is a very different different process. And, um, yeah, for example, like the MAPS training, they, they do give therapists the opportunity to sit with MDMA um, as part of that training. It's optional. Um, but I'm guessing there's going to be more and more examples of these you know of as these legal trials expand i think you know we're moving towards legalization of these substances and expanded access sites you know that's pretty much happening in the states right now and it's starting to happen in canada as well um yeah i think it's going to bring up a lot of ethical questions around like if you think about psilocybin like that does have indigenous roots so but that that's not even part of the discussion. And, you know, I think especially within a research setting, there has to be this very practical, uh, very mind centered way of looking at it. Like you have to, you have to be able to measure it. You have to be able to, to talk about it, to compare it. Um, you know, one of the things they get critiqued for is like the active cases is that people are using different amounts because they need different amounts, but that's, you know, that's so normal as we've seen. So I I think that through that modality and that channel of research, a lot is lost in terms of the other elements. Like I think in order to fit into that mold, 
Um, only a certain things can be talked about and a lot of things have to be left out. And that's, you know, that's, that's okay. It's not the worst thing, but I, I guess I'm just curious about, well, when do those other pieces of the conversation get to be brought back in and how can we look to people? Cause for example, if you're thinking about a boga or ayahuasca or, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure in Mexico in terms of what the training process is to be a healer with, with that medicine um, but it, it, there's a, a real apprenticeship there and a real intimacy with the plant before you give it. Um, and that's, I think that's missing. And so these moments of, you know, what you talked about in terms of that, I'm going to interpret what you said, so correct me if I'm wrong, but that space inside that these, these things create of working with them and that knowing that it's going to be okay um, and the capacity to, sit with someone and still stay regulated within yourself, even if they're going through something extreme. Um, I'll be curious to see how that pans out for people. Uh, Cause you know, in doing many ceremonies with people that these can bring up a whole big range of experience. And so if there's not that containment, I guess that's the piece that I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, in terms of how that, is going to look within these settings. And I know, once again, from the MAPS protocol with MDMA, it's two therapists for one participant, which is a really beautiful ratio. Um, but it, I think a lot of, you know, that that's potentially like a really good container for that work to happen. Um, but I think this larger skills and, you know, people are having spiritual experiences and I don't think every therapist is kind of, able to talk about that you know I think they could if they're a good therapist they could probably ask questions um, and you know eventually get the person to come to their own sense of clarity around it or what that means to them or why that's important to them Um, but that kind of that real inner intimacy with these plants and being connected with a larger kind of lineage and container um, is is kind of missing from this equation and so I I think there will be a need for a lot of like psycho-spiritual development in this world in this next period of time Um, but you know I even like so ketamine is legal currently and one of the things that's being researched for is suicide and then I've also heard of a lot of people just through my networks of having clients who have committed suicide after using ketamine um, and things like this that aren't really being talked about that much. Um, And so again, I think it just plays into this idea of this, we're going to fix, you know, we're going to give you the cure. You can come. Um, One thing I really appreciate actually about the MAPS protocol is that there has to be a certain amount of preparation where they're doing processing and also skill building. Uh, and then there has to be a certain amount of, of integration afterwards. And then there's the experience. And so for example, with ketamine, you can go to clinics right now and just get hooked up to an IV and then put in front of a screen and in a room with other folks. And that's, it's like an IV clinic. And that's how it works. And for me personally, I think that that, you know, maybe it's helpful for some people. I don't know, but I, I, I personally have some ethical 
issues with that in terms of I, I don't think these substances should be done in terms of like without that kind of therapeutic container whatever that is so that in the jungle that's the healers holding that space um and I, I i guess i just worry that a lot of people are trying to make money off of this because i think they all can be good medicines i think it can be um translated to the west well but there's a lot lost in that process and um I, I'm just worried that it's going to be this other, this new fix-all, cure-all. Your depression will go away if you take psilocybin once within a clinical setting. And I know there's, again, there's other folks that are working with it differently. There's a whole spectrum kind of of people doing this work. And I think it often comes down to the intentions behind the company, if it is rooted in that kind of idea of supporting people, or if it's really driven by how do we make money off of this and profit off of this and I think the the disconnect from indigenous systems yeah there's a huge 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 loss with that um, in terms of just how to navigate this how to work with it how to work with different energies how to support that and I guess the difference in my mind is is you know when you work with indigenous healers in the context of the temple or if you go and sit ceremony with um or you do a dieta with Ernesto, it's like they, they're a doctor. And they're really navigating the space and they're really holding it. And then I feel like what part of the difference is in the West when people are consuming you know, psilocybin or MDMA, um, there's guides there, but I don't think they're doctors in terms of I don't think they have the tools to really help support that energy to move. I think it's really, I think it puts a lot more work on the patient or the client whatever however you want to conceptualize that um, to work with the plant and then to have someone there to support and really like just ask questions it's kind of the model in terms of maybe there'll be some some touch work um, but again that has to be really done within a very specific way because of the regulations around around touch within that usually within that professional uh, body so I think that's the big difference to me is that I think really good work can happen within that, that container, but I think you're missing that kind of power of someone really directing, unless the person, the therapist has a long standing relationship with that, with that substance. Um, and I know, I know there's a lot of folks that are working with ketamine who do try and bring in some of that ritual component and they try to bring in you know that spiritual component and I think this is going to be again like a really growing conversation within this field of like how do we start to bring into this and then I guess I'm just curious about when does that become appropriation or when is that okay to do or how is that okay to do and some clients will want that and some clients won't um, you know a lot of people have really negative associations with spirituality maybe that'll shift through doing this work but at first it's like they don't want to they don't want to think about that or they don't want to that's been something traumatic in their life so I don't know I'm curious to see how it all expands and again I know a lot of folks that are doing really good work within that within that field um but yeah 
I guess I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see how it unfolds. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> you think that's, <clears throat> because it seems like maybe you were alluding to this idea, you mentioned at the end, like spirit. Um, and it, in so many, uh, I mean, I think really in all traditions around the world, there was this deep connection to this idea of spirit, that there is this reverence, this awe. And it, it's, it's one of the beautiful things, even where I am is, you know, I, I also smoke my pipe usually at night and just looking at the stars, it's whatever I was doing before, whether it was answering emails or something, like I go out and, and I look at the sky and it just, it shifts my consciousness. I mean, that may sound kind of like woo-woo or something, but it's, it's just, there's this sense of like, all of that begins to drop away in, in a way. And there's just this sense of like, holy shit, like, that's incredible. That's, you know, and it, it just, and in so many of these cultures, again, if not all, it seems like uh, almost always these, these plants were connected to this idea of spirituality, that, that, that there's this deep, even as we were talking about like these three levels of healing, there's, there's not just the physical level, which I think in a lot of, you know, quote unquote, Western science, even that's begun to change a lot. Like they have seen that there's this mind body connection that the physical ailments there, there's also a very deep mental, emotional aspect to them as well. But from this more kind of traditional approach, there's also this idea of spirit, which I think, you know, as you said, like with yourself, like there was this kind of longing when, when ayahuasca started calling you, it, it was more of this like connection to spirit of, of like something deeper that I'm not necessarily connecting to or being fulfilled with in this, in this mm -hmm. physical reality. And, it, and that these plants gave us a way to access that. I mean, it's, it's a really common phenomena, which is, you know, even people who identify themselves as atheists, they come down and they have this big experience and they can, in a way, like maybe they fight it, but it's very difficult to continue that same way of speaking. Like there's something that they're connected to that they, they may not have words to describe. They, they may not have the vocabulary, but there's, there's a deep felt sense that, that there, that something is different. And so with this work of, because again, it's not to take away from it because like the, the, the MAPS training with the MDMA, I mean, it, it seems like the results are amazing. Like two thirds of yeah. the people are free of PTSD, which is incredible. I mean, no other yeah. medicine that, that we've been working with and in, in the cultures we come from are touching anywhere near that. So, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I hope that's continued to, to further develop. But as you were saying it seems like often these plants are being used to treat very specific conditions. Like if you have PTSD, you work with this. Uh, if you have an addiction, you work with ibogaine because that will get rid of your addiction. If you have this, you work with that. But it seems like potentially maybe the thing that's missing in that is that all of those things are real, but maybe in essence, that's not what they're trying to get to. They're, they're trying to connect us to something greater, this idea of spirit. And that until we find a way to begin to integrate that into this work, there's always gonna be something that's, that's a bit lost. Yeah, and even for myself, I feel like my measurement of well-being is how much I'm feeling connected to something bigger 
you know, if I'm in the stress and I feel like grad school really puts me in my head, for example, and I've noticed that impact on my body. And um, I think that that's going to be, you know, this is very kind of new within this context and in terms of North America, it's not, it's not new and it's new in terms of this style and format. And, you know, I think maps are actually doing the best protocol. I guess I'm more concerned of the other companies that are starting to do this. And um, anyways, that's, that can be a whole big discussion, but yeah, I think that's a piece that folks are going to have to, to grapple with. And, you know, there's, um, one of the folks from CIAS who created, there's a, a program there in terms of doing this assisted therapies. They, they wrote a training manual in terms of the qualities therapists need to have. And spiritual practice was, was one of them. Uh, I think it's Jan Phelps is her name. Um, and, you know, I think eventually if this work is going to continue, that's going to be something that people need to address. And I think, you know, for example, with maps, um, you know, research probably doesn't want to talk that, you know, they'll mention that people have had spiritual experiences and found that beneficial, but in order to speak, that's a certain language you have to speak. And so there's certain things you need to focus on. And so I think as this work grows and expands, um, yeah, people are going to have to talk about what does it mean to have that sense of connection to something greater. And, you know, I've had many integration sessions where people have reached out grappling with, they now believe in a, a God or a creator and this, you know, flips their world upside down. And, and what does that mean? And what does that look like? And um, that being really challenging for folks in terms of, okay, what does this mean about me in terms of if I have to suddenly shift my whole worldview? So I think there's going to be more and more questions of that. And I think hopefully that's where people can start to um, draw on a lot of these other indigenous traditions that have kept that alive in terms of, you know, again, it's in my worldview, it's about being in relationship. So how do you be in relationship to your environment around you? How do you be in relationship to the people around you? In terms of like, do you have that thing that you feel like is holding you? You know, when you go out and smoke your pipe and look at the stars, I imagine there's some sense of something larger holding you and that's there. And I feel like that's such a fundamental human need. And, um, you know, the more and more, you know, colonization at its root is about that disconnect from the land, from the practices. And so many people have experienced that. Um, through Christianity or through, you know, even a lot of European traditions have been lost because of that, that used to have that, that connection to the earth. And so I think it's the more and more we can start to rebuild that connection. I feel like there's some piece of us that just craves that. Um, but we've grown up in a culture that really doesn't support that or prioritize that or talk about it. Um, maybe people will have that experience naturally through a connection with nature if they do like mountaineering or just like to go for walks in the woods or uh, become an herbalist or something like this. So maybe there's different ways that some folks keep that alive or, you know, thinking of kayakers wanting to protect the ocean or things like this that happen for people, but it's not within that spiritual context. And it's so hard to access um, 
I think in meaningful ways when you grow up in a culture that's pretty disconnected from that. So I think that that's, you know, my somatic experiencing teacher, he said, I think people do plant medicines because they want to connect with the earth. That's what he said. And want to connect with that thing that's larger there and holding them. And so I think there's a lot of truth in that. Like there's some part eventually, you know, if I think in most traditions, if you go back, like that was the thing that was worshipped along with often a series of other folks, but it all came back to those land-based practices. And so just how you, how you start to build that in a way. And I think that's also a very confusing part for people's integration of like, well, how do I do that in a way that's appropriate or in a way that feels good to me or in a way that, you know, um, even in Peru, you know, they would tell me to smoke tobacco. <laughs> you know, they say, you diet, you have to smoke tobacco. They would say, you know, buy this tela, keep it with you. You know, I was told you can never sell or give away that tela. Like that's for you. Um, but even in North America, there's a lot of different, you know, if someone thought I was using tobacco in a spiritual sense, here people could view that as like appropriation. Um, and I'm not saying that's, again, bad or good. Uh, there's just a lot of different, or using sage, for example. Um, some folks here would see that as a form of appropriation. Um, so I think there's a lot of sensitivity around it for people for a lot of different reasons, and especially as different movements like Black Lives Matter start to happen, um, and there's more and more, you know, for example, in Canada, they just found 215 kids that were buried at a residential school. And so there's just like a heightened sensitivity of a lot of these issues around the impacts of what colonization has done here. And so I think it's finding a respectful way for folks that they can grapple with that and then not feel like they're still appropriating. Um, it's, it's pretty tough for a lot of people that live here. I feel like in Peru, um, you know, it was a question I had in my mind, but I just felt very encouraged in a lot of ways to work with the plants and do that. And I, I feel very fortunate. I have met um, different folks here who have encouraged me as well. Um, but there's, yeah, there's just a lot of, I guess just there needs to be a lot of respect and humility, I think, when we're trying to learn from Indigenous people and not to just appropriate that personally. You mentioned something really interesting <clears throat> that in some of your integration work, like it's really hard for people to grapple when they've had this experience where then they feel somehow connected. And again, words, are, they kind of always fail in this, but to this idea of spirit or there, there's some new spiritual component to their lives. And it's something interesting because it seems like in, in a lot of the cultures we come from, as you mentioned, like through this consumeristic or reductionist way, there's often almost like this looking down upon people who are of a religious background because it's this idea, well, they're just believing in something that they haven't experienced. And, and I can see there's truth in that, like if they haven't experienced something. But at the same time, like that atheistic view seemingly to me is the same thing. It's because I haven't experienced something, it's not true. Um, and therefore, 
you know, everything can be grasped and known with the mind. And yet it seems like that also causes a tremendous amount of suffering. And that, but that also when someone does have that experience, it's often very hard for them to integrate that because it's something so foreign. And mm -hmm. do you think uh, like a lot of that, you know, w on either side is, is just kind of the sense of fear, separation of like trying to grasp things that I can't understand. And whether I, I put my faith blindly in something or whether I dismiss everything completely, it's almost like this self-protective mechanism of, of trying to keep myself safe in the midst of, of something that I potentially can't understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that could be one reason to do it for sure in terms of, again, I, I think it speaks to also this generation of disconnect. So if for many generations, you know, that could be an intergenerational trauma um, that I don't believe in a God anymore. You know, I had a, I had a grandfather who was atheist and for his time and where he grew up, like that was really radical. Um, and, you know, he, he was really respectful of other people's beliefs, but, you know, for him, that just wasn't something he, he believed in. And yeah, I, I think it goes back to that, that disconnect from something larger was intentional um, maybe it goes many, many, many generations back, but there was a purpose for that. And I think it's that disconnecting people from those, those practices or from that faith, um, is it, it's a lot easier to, again, it kind of goes back to the, the idea of converting them to Christianity or colonizing their country or whatever it is, you know, taking away from their, their practices, their traditions, their language, um, it's a lot easier to comply them. And then with that disconnect comes a lot of pain. Um, and so I, I guess that I feel like there, there is a fear um, of the unknown in a lot of ways. And if you haven't been given that, that context, so I think that's a huge piece of integration is that people don't have the language where if you were in, if you were born Shipibo and you had a family who was active with these traditions still, like this would be like talking about the hockey game <laughs> at dinner, you know, you could just talk about these things. They'd be met, they'd be understood. People might ask questions. Um, but here there isn't really that social language of how to talk about these experiences. And so I think some people have them and, you know, it was that, I think it's just really scary because they don't have the context and they don't have the language. And so I think it can be a fear-based response um, for different reasons. And um, I, I think ultimately people want it personally, uh, even if that is just a like feeling like there is something bigger than them out there and they don't really know. They just have a, a felt sense of what that is. And, you know, I think a lot of people that I've personally worked with, you know, for many people that has meant like a Christian perspective and it's like, well, they associate God still in some ways with this religion that they don't want to associate with. And so this idea of like uncoupling those or pulling those things apart, that there can be a spirituality that's not based in this history, um, 
can be a really important piece for people in terms of, well, what does that, again, this kind of more authentic spirituality, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me with my own intersectionalities of who I am, where I'm at, uh, in the context I'm in? Uh, and that can be a, a pretty tricky process for people. And it's, I guess, <laughs> too, like, a lot of compassion. If someone for, like, 45 years has been atheist, was raised that way, and in one night gets that flipped upside down, like, that can cause a big existential crisis and, like, questioning and, like, this question of, like, well, who am I then and what does that mean and how does that change? You know, for some people, that's a that, that process can question everything. And it's like, okay, and now I have to rethink my whole world in some ways and, and how do I do that? So, again, this comes down to this idea of a big death and a big grief. Of this is how I made sense of the world. And now at 45, I have to renegotiate that. That's huge. And that's going to take time. Yeah. <laughs> With integration, because that's a, that's a big part of your work now. Um, you know, I, I think probably even a decade ago, it wasn't something that was spoken of that much. Now it seems to be something that's, that's, that's very prevalent. Uh, it's seen as something that's very important. Um, what do you see? Like, I guess first, what is integration and, and why is that important? And, and how does that look like? Yeah. Um, what is integration? So again, I guess it comes down to like, so if I go back to that example of someone uh, from a Shipibo culture who used ayahuasca maybe for the first time and then had a whole community that kind of understood it. Um, they have probably a lot more language in understanding their experience. And so I think with, with integration, a lot of folks don't have the language, I think, to to talk about it or to think about how this applies to my life. Okay, last night I was flying in clouds with dragons. Um, what does that mean, you know, on a Tuesday when I'm going to work at 7.30 in the morning? Um, and so, you know, that's a, a kind of silly example, but uh, I guess it's this idea of, of integration to me, essentially, which I mean, a lot of these spiritual traditions talk about is this idea of coming back to wholeness or self or this idea, you know, internal family systems. I've been talking a lot today about parts. So getting to know different parts of ourselves. Um, and also this capacity to also be able to digest the things we haven't been able to digest in our past. And so it's this process of, yeah, getting to know yourself, of coming back to that authenticity of, you know, creating more of that connection. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can view it. Um, in terms of how that looks for people, again, it really depends on where they're at and who they are and the language and way in which they see the world. And so for some people, it's like they want someone to be accountable for in terms of what they're doing and, you know, and for some people it's, you know, I had this old memory come up and I really need to work through that and talk about that with someone. And, you know, I, I really believe in the somatic of slowing things down, helping them get present with it now. Um, sometimes it will be around, yeah, how do I, 
this kind of tool of alignment. Like what, what do I want to align to? And then what does that mean in, in terms of my life? And how do I start to, so if we give the example of now I believe in spirituality, after 45 years of being atheist, how does that shift my day to day? Um, you know, also I really believe in like, how do we access those states that come in ceremony and start to work with them on the subtle level in our waking life? So a lot of people will experience something and it may be like at a hundred in the ceremony. And then how do you start to work with that when it's on like five? And how do you keep that seed alive? How do you start to work with it? So I think it really depends on what people need. Sometimes people are just confused by what came up and they want to have someone to work that out with in terms of, once again, I think there's not that cultural container and conceptions of what these things are or mean. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I guess that's, that's some of you know, what it is and how it shows up for people. And again, I think some people want to do one or two sessions and some people like to do ongoing work as a way to have someone to, to kind of come back to. But, you know, ultimately I, I think it's about how do I stay in connection to what I learned? If you think of these, these plants as teachers and then how do I, you know, sometimes people also want someone accountable in terms of like, how do I keep that uh, doing something different instead of just falling back into my old patterns or to even have perspective. It's like, okay, well, maybe I've shifted this, I don't know, 50%. You know, I thought I it was going to look like this when I was in ceremony and everything was at the height of experience and, and maybe it actually looks something like this. And um, I really believe in like, how do you also keep those those opportunities open. Sometimes people have a really fixed idea of what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, um, what does it mean? And then, you know, sitting with that for a little bit, bringing a bit of curiosity, I think that can often shift for folks um, because it's a really expensive thing. And I think it's ultimately like a way, um, Dr. Ido Cohen and I, we both talk a lot about this in terms of it's, it's a lifestyle in some ways. It's not just the, the thing you do. And so I think people can do that integration in their lives through a lot of different things like dance, like we talked about earlier, dance, song, some kind of spiritual practice, time in nature, um, martial arts, whatever it is, people can, can kind of work with those qualities. Um, and they also need to find ways sometimes to, to process it. And so I guess that's where I think other integration facilitators and myself or therapists can come in. Great. Well, we've done uh, over two hours. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm happy to keep going, but I, I imagine you're, you're probably pretty busy uh, with a lot of things. But um, is, is there anything else you, you'd like to touch on? Um, anything that's on your mind that, that you think uh, people may find interesting or that, that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I've said it through, but I guess I'm a really big advocate for these medicines aren't for everyone or at all times. And I think sometimes there's a bit of a fantastical brush painted or, you know, in terms of that 
I'm just thinking of like someone going and doing ayahuasca and saying my whole family needs to do this now or um so I guess I just like listen to that calling when it comes I also really don't believe in forcing it um you know I I I think these medicines deserve a lot of respect and it doesn't mean anything about anyone's character if it's not the right time and sometimes not taking it for folks is just as big of a lesson as taking it. And so I, I really obviously believe in them. And I also think that there's, yeah, not, not to force it. It's a really big thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how, would you, how would you describe your work? And, and if people are interested in working with you, how can they go about doing that? You mentioned a few times uh, this gentleman, Ido, who you work with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know you also do integration work by, by phone or Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, how, yeah, I guess, how would, you, how would you describe your work? Who are you again? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm Deanna Rogers again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think with Ido, uh, we do a lot of work with. We, it's generally promoted under the integration circle. Instagram's usually the best place to find that out or you can reach out to me. Um, So we do group workshops and we also do group integration circles. Uh, There's some integration circles. They're on pause for now, but with the temple with a way of light as well. Um, Personally, I have a website. I don't know if you can link. I can just give you the link. Yeah, it's really basic, but it works. And yeah, I do a lot of one-to-one work. I have different people reaching out who are curious. And so sometimes they just want to talk to people about that in terms of being curious to work with these plants. Um, I do prep work with people or integration work. So those are generally one-hour sessions. And yeah, you can probably online is the best way or I can give you my email to put up there too. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Diana. This this was a pleasure. Um, you have a, a lot of knowledge and wisdom to share. So uh, I think people are, are really going to get a lot out of this episode. And thank you for all the work you're doing and, and your dedication. And, and I think it, it really shows. It's uh, there's, there's a beautiful maturity about you and, and I think just a, a real depth of wisdom. So um, thank you again. Thank you for sharing and thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to one of these days, who knows how it's going to happen or when, but that our, our paths yeah. cross again. <laughs> thanks, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having this platform. And I also really appreciate that you're bringing a lot of voices from the Amazon or Colombia. I know you had someone with Aboga as well, just bringing some of the voices up from the source as well. I really appreciate that. think that's needed yeah yeah well great well thank you so much diana it's been a pleasure and um yeah i'll put the links to to your websites and the instagram up and and i hope some people reach out to you and and thank you very much again yeah thanks jason All right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Diana. Uh, It was really a pleasure for me to be able to sit down and catch up with her. She's been doing this work for a long time. And uh, as I said in the beginning, I I think she has a lot of knowledge and wisdom to share. So I hope you all uh, really learned something from this. 
Um, as always, if you're able to help to support the podcast, that's a really big help to me to help to continue to to produce them, to shoot them, to bring on these guests. Uh, Patreon is a really good way to do that. It's a subscription service, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe. Uh, and with different tiers, there's different uh, bonus benefits you get back, things like... Um, uh, bonus material, Q&As, early access to shows. Uh, so that's a really big help for me uh, to help me to continue to produce these shows. To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. Um, there's also the option of direct donating via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. And then if you're not able to do that, going on the YouTube channel, the Universe Within podcast, uh, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the videos. That's a really big help with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. And then with the audio version going on um, Apple Podcasts, also subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review. That's a really big help. So thank you all very much. Uh, the next guest I have coming on, uh, I think my friend Scott is coming on. Um, another guy who works with uh, Wachuma will hopefully be coming on soon. Um, and there's a couple other guests, but I'm not sure of the exact order yet. Uh, but as always, there should be some really good people coming on. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you all for the support. And I will see you on the next episode. Thank mm-hmm. you.